0: If you do have a Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn uh, to Matthew, to the Gospel of Matthew, to the ninth chapter. This morning, uh, we move into a new time in the the church calendar. Uh, We've been in Advent and Epiphany and Lent and Easter season. In the last couple of weeks, we've been in Pentecost and Trinity Sunday, finishing off that season. And now we enter into a time that, the church fathers and mothers and all their wisdom kind of met together with advertisers and said, let's call it common time, Um, ordinary time. That was a joke, by the way, Uh, ordinary time, common time. Uh, This time where we now spend about 24 weeks together. By the way, it's not helpful for you to be here if you don't laugh. Um, So, uh, thank you. I have preached for 11 straight weeks to a camera and said very funny things and no one does anything. Except Ryan, maybe back in the back of Brandt Center, goes like that. But but we enter this time we call common time or ordinary time where we think about what does it mean for us to embody this this new creation life and await the fulfillment of the new creation. And so in the next 24 weeks, the readings from the lectionary in the Gospels are from Matthew. And so we're going to spend time in the Gospel of Matthew um, it drops us off today um, at chapter nine, beginning at verse 35. If you have that, and if you're able this morning you're with us, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Matthew 9:35 through108. Jesus traveled among all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, announcing the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were troubled and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, "'The size of the harvest is bigger than you can imagine, "'but there are few workers. "'Therefore plead with the Lord of the harvest "'to send out workers for his harvest.' "'He called his 12 disciples "'and gave them authority over unclean spirits "'to throw them out "'and to heal every disease and every sickness. "'Here are the names of the 12 apostles. first, Simon, who is called Peter, "'and Andrew, his brother, "'James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, "'Philip and Bartholomew, "'Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector,' James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian or Zealot, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Jesus sent these 12 out and commanded them, don't go among the Gentiles or into a Samaritan city. Go instead to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. As you go, make this announcement. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases and throw out demons. You received without having to pay, therefore give without demanding. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we're going to be in Matthew for the next 24 weeks and uh, probably break that into kind of three sections. In these first eight weeks, I want to think about how the kingdom of God or the new creation has come to us. And then we will kind of transition and begin to think about the keys of the new creation or the keys of the kingdom. As Jesus begins to teach us the nature of this kingdom, what are the key aspects of it. And then we'll finish with eight weeks thinking about how this kingdom, this new creation, creates all kinds of upheaval. Uh, For you cannot receive the new unless you let go of the old. And there's great upheaval that comes with the coming of the kingdom. But this morning, if you have a Bible with you, um, I would love for you to put something in chapters 9 and 10, and I'm going to walk you through because we get dropped off kind of a, a about a quarter or a third of the way through the gospel of Matthew. I wanna talk about where we've been. So today I'll probably do a little more teaching than preaching, but that's okay. Um, and if you, ha- if you are taking notes, both of you, this would be, this is, there's gonna be good stuff today. And so I wanna walk you through and, and think about uh, Matthew with you. So if you, if you turn to the very beginning, Matthew begins this way, a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He gives a genealogy. um, And then if you go to verse 17, so there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile uh, to Babylon and 14 generations from the exile of Babylon to Christ. And so if you have a Bible and you like to underline or circle things, I'd invite you to circle those three things, Abraham, David, and the exile. So what Matthew is telling us from the very beginning is Matthew is going to tell this story of Jesus through the lens of three particular things. It's going to tell the story of Jesus through the lens of Abraham, through the lens of God's people that were formed by father Abraham and mother Sarah, that they are going, that whatever Jesus is going to be, he is going to be a fulfillment, a conclusion. He's going to bring to fruitfulness the story that got started in Abraham. So this is going to be Israel's story that Matthew is going to tell us. It's also gonna be the story of David, of the fulfillment of all the expectations of a kind of shepherd rule, a a godly rule in all of creation, set up in the imagination of a ruler like David. Um, We need a new son of David, Matthew will argue, and Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of that. But there's also a sense in which this is a fulfillment of a kind of exile. I don't know if we've talked about that before, but uh, there is this theme in which we look at the Old Testament, we think about an exile where Judah and Benjamin were exiled into Judah, but they look back and realize, wait a minute, the whole nation of Israel was exiled into Egypt, but then they look further back and think, no, the whole world has been exiled from God's purposes. And and so even though a new temple has been built and the Jews are able to kind of live in and around Jerusalem, they still realize things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things There's a kind of exile, Rome is in power. And so Matthew's gonna tell this story in this way, whatever Jesus is, he is a fulfillment of the story that started in Israel. He is the embodiment of the rule that we hoped for in David. And this Jesus is going to bring the world that is in exile back into right relationship with God. Are you with me? Now I am going to use, um, in this, the language of new creation. I I just want to give a a little aside to say that's not really a language Matthew uses. Matthew uses the language of the kingdom of God. I don't think it's wrong for us. And I'm going to use the language of new creation often, not just because we've been using that around here. Um, I got to, we regathered this morning at Middleton, um, at new creation community Middleton, and we've been using that language there. We've been using the NCC here, Nampa College Church to kind of think about new creation communities and And I love that language. But part of the reason I'm gonna use that language is because I do think that's Paul's language to describe what Matthew describes as the kingdom of God. And sometimes because kingdom of God language for us can be misused. Um, I've been listening, I'm almost finished. I've been listening to a very long biography of George Washington. And in the establishment of this nation, we didn't like language of kings, (laughs) right? we were getting out of king and queen and royalty kind of language. Um, And so we, we tend to kind of be a people who don't use king and queen language very much, but also we have a tendency to think about that in terms of kind of conquest and reign. And I think, as we'll see in Matthew, when we hear language of kingdom of heaven, then we think the goal of the gospel is somehow to get us out of here to there. And what I'm going to argue as we read Matthew together is Jesus came not to get us from here to somewhere else, but to initiate the renewal and reign of God, to finish the story that Israel began of the healing of all creation, to finish the story that David began of a rightful rule of God as shepherd over his creation, and the end of this brokenness and exile between us and God and then between us and each other because of it and Paul can say that's a new creation and Matthew will say that's the kingdom of God in our midst at the end of chapter 1 we get the birth of Jesus um, fulfilling Isaiah's expectation we also get the coming of the Magi as I've said to you before if all we had was Matthew we'd have a very boring Christmas pageant um we would not nearly have to recruit as many children to fulfill roles. Uh, we'd have no angels, no shepherds. We just have three wise guys, right? And we're not even sure three is the right number, but we have, we just have Magi in it. Um, I am convinced that what Matthew is trying to do, I may be wrong about this, but I am convinced that Matthew in telling us the story of the Magi is again trying to complete the story of Israel. In First Kings chapter 10, uh, a ruler from the East, a woman named the queen of Sheba hears about Solomon, the first son of David and all his power and might and wisdom. She doesn't believe it. She has to see it for herself. So she travels all this way. And when she sees Solomon and all his splendor, she passes out and she brings him gifts of gold and spices to celebrate this kingship. But then the narrative turns and we realize Solomon, the son of David, who had all this glory and might, who the queen of Sheba said, God must have raised you up to do justice in the world. Finally, he does quite the opposite and turns the people's hearts away from God. And so we need a new son of David. And so Matthew reminds us that there were three guys who came from the East with the very same gifts the queen of Sheba had, gold and spices. They threw in myrrh, because who doesn't bring myrrh, right? Who doesn't throw in myrrh? But they bring in myrrh as a way of saying this king that they have come didn't make them pass out. In fact, it was quite the opposite of the way Sheba experienced Solomon. They experienced a king in humility. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the gifts that they bring also include gifts of death. For Matthew tells us right away, this is gonna be a new son of David who turns the whole expectation upside down. That was really good. Um, hope you're taking notes on that. If you have a Bible that has headlines, um, notice what the next headlines are. At the end of chapter two, escape to Egypt. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus have to escape to, to Egypt. And why do they have to do that? Because of the next headline, the murder of the Bethlehem children, a ruler who is paranoid, who's gonna kill male babies. And then after they escape from Egypt, chapter three moves into this moment where Jesus passes through the waters of baptism with John the Baptist and ends up in the wilderness only to then in chapters five, six, and seven, go up on a mountain to proclaim the way of the kingdom. Now, if you're following, that's this, Egypt, paranoid ruler, killing babies, water, wilderness, mountain. Ring any bells? If it doesn't, we're sending you back to children's church to the felt boards. For it is the same story of Israel, again, coming out of Egypt, fearful of a ruler trying to kill male babies, passing through the waters of new creation in order to enter a wilderness, to be formed to be who God wants them to be, then to go on a mountain and hear the Torah, hear the law proclaimed the way of the kingdom. Notice if you have a Bible for chapter four, verse 23, before the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we get this verse. Jesus traveled throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. He announced the good news of the kingdom and healed every disease and sickness among the people. Now hang on to that verse, okay? And I want you to notice a couple of things in your Bible. Not only does this whole story ring the bells of Egypt, but if you have a Bible that has footnotes in it, like mine does, you'll notice almost all the footnotes are quotations from the Old Testament. Because Matthew is trying to say this whole story of Israel is being relived in the life and purposes of Jesus. And then in chapters five through seven, we get the Sermon on the Mount, the articulation of what this kingdom looks like. And then in chapters eight and nine, now hang with me here. In chapters eight and nine, we get nine miracles put together in three groups of three. Notice again, the headlines. And by the way, it's okay to write in your Bible. The first one, a man with a skin disease, chapter eight, verse one. Chapter eight, verse five, the healing of the centurion's servant, miracle two. Chapter eight, verse 14, miracle three, Jesus went home with Peter and and healed Peter's mother-in-law. We're not told if Peter was happy about that, but Jesus did go and heal Peter's mother-in-law. And so we have these three miracles, boom, 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 about the healing of people's bodies. And then verse 17, Matthew writes this, this happened so that what Isaiah the prophet said would be fulfilled. He is the one who took our illnesses and carried away our diseases. So we were expecting this messianic figure to come who would heal our bodies and carry our diseases. Now, the second set of three miracles. Well, by the way, in that, right after that that proclamation, there is a call to come and follow him. Somebody says, well, I've got so much to do. I've got to bury my father. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and go with me. And then we get three new miracles. Verse 23, chapter eight, the calming of a storm. Chapter eight, verse 28, number two, Jesus frees demon-possessed men. Chapter nine, verse one, Jesus heals the paralyzed man who the friends lower on a mat. Do you remember that? And forgives their sins. Miracle number one in the set is about the power of Christ over the tohu and the bohu, over the chaos of the waters, of evil and brokenness. Miracle number two is Christ's power over the demonic oppression in people's lives. Miracle number three is the forgiveness of someone's sins so that they are now free to live the way that they were intended to live. Now notice, Jesus, again, verse 9, chapter 9, invites now Matthew, a really good sinner, to come and leave everything behind and follow him. Another call to follow him. And now Jesus quotes the Old Testament, verse 13. Go and learn what this means from Hosea 6, 6. I require mercy and not sacrifice. So Matthew is telling us we wanted a Messiah who would come and heal our bodies, but we also need a Messiah who would come and have control over evil and brokenness and bring the forgiveness of sins and bring the mercy of God in our midst. And now lastly, the third set of miracles, chapter nine, verse 18, a ruler's daughter and remember the woman who touches the hem of Jesus's clothes, uh, uh, the hem of his garment and is healed. Miracle number two, verse 27, Jesus heals two blind men. Miracle number three, verse 33, he heals someone who is mute. The idea here being, we need a Messiah who is able to see those who are, who are dying and left marginalized and bring them back to wholeness. And as the kingdom comes, those who are unable to see it, their eyes will be opened and they can see. And those who are unable to even find the words to speak about it, they're lips will be loosed and they will be able to speak about the coming of God's kingdom. And now you're not very excited yet, but I told you to hang on to chapter four, verse 23. So go back there for just a second and keep chapter nine, verse 35, where our text started today. Keep those together like this. You ready? Here's 423. Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. He announced the good news of the kingdom and healed every disease and sickness among the people. 835. Jesus traveled among all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, announcing the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Bing, 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 bing. So weird. Chapter 4, verse verse 23 and chapter 9, verse 35 are almost identical. As though Matthew is riding along and has a brain cloud and totally forgot. He already said that. Or... Matthew is trying to put together two moments of teaching where Jesus comes and proclaims what the kingdom of God looks like as we live it out. But then also begins to proclaim that the power of that kingdom has come and it has come to heal our bodies and to set us free from sin and to empower us to proclaim that. And now where we begin, and now the sermon starts, now where we begin, is now an invitation for us to come and to participate. For this is a kingdom, this is a new creation that is not just coming by the power and ministry and life of Jesus. It is one that we are now invited to participate in. And so this morning, out of this brief text, I just wanna say four quick things about the way that we are invited to lean in. Before I do that, though, I want you to notice something. Go to chapter 10. Jesus called his 12, notice Matthew's language here, called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to throw out and to heal every disease and every sickness. And now notice this language. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. It's kind of interesting, just in two verses, Matthew switches his language from disciples, people who follow Jesus, to apostles, people who carry the ministry of Jesus forward in the world. And if you don't get anything else out of this morning, as we journey these next 24 weeks in Matthew, here's what we are invited to do, to become followers of Jesus so that we might be the instruments and carriers of the mission of Jesus into the world. We are both disciples and apostles. And what we learn about this mission that we've been given as apostles is this, chapter nine, verse 36. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were troubled and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This mission that God has given to us primarily flows out of compassion. It flows out of a heart like Jesus. Jesus sees the crowds broken and messy and the text is not, and it makes him so angry that they are wasting their lives. The text is not, Jesus looks at the crowds and the brokenness and he is so fearful that they might wind up in hell. He looks at the crowds and their brokenness. They are like sheep without a shepherd and his stomach hurts. And his tear ducts are filled because he has compassion on them. The mission that God has given us will, will ultimately flow out of hearts that have been shaped by the compassion of Jesus. Thanks for that video, it reminded me of a story. I may have told you when Deb and I were in Pasadena, we would go to the Rose Parade almost every year. And if you've ever been to the Rose Parade, you know it's beautiful and lovely and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the parade, there are these groups of guys who every year show up from a local church um, and I think a kind of seminary who show up to yell at everybody. And they carry big yellow signs that say, Jesus loves and kills. And, and you're going to hell. And they carry megaphones and they yell at everybody, Happy New Year, you're going to hell, right? Like that's what they do. Deb and I went to, what reminded me of it was the U2 song. Deb and Caleb and Noah and I went to, to a U2 concert at the Rose Bowl and we parked way up on the hill and we were walking down the hill and here came the guys with the yellow signs and the megaphones. And they were yelling at us that we were going to hell and they, they yelled at the crowd, You're all going to hell because you love sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And all the crowd around us went, woo, like that, you know. Um, it was a very, very effective form of evangelism. Um, th- those guys used to irritate us and make us mad. Now they just kind of break my heart. Because the motivation for our mission is never anger. And it is not, I would argue, even fear. It is Compassion is the brokenheartedness for the broken in the world. That's why I would challenge you, I can't find one, maybe you can. I cannot find a time when Jesus is ever with broken people and has a good sermon for them on hell. We have no record of Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house and saying, Zacchaeus, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd be? The tone of the text is As though Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you know, you were created for more than this, right? You know, there's a God who wants you to be more and do more than what you are being and doing. Now it's not that Jesus doesn't talk about hell before you send me emails and texts, he does. But every time I found Jesus talk about hell, it's when he has a good group of Pharisees in his midst. And he wants to say this. Oh, you want to talk about judgment? Let's talk about judgment. You want to pick out the speck in everybody else's eye while you whack each other with the log in your own eye. It's very quiet in here. Um, but anyway, uh, maybe it's quiet out there too. Uh, second thing, quickly. Verse 38. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for the harvest. We pray. We pray that God would send workers into his harvest field. It's interesting that the language is workers. Where we are to respond to what God is already doing in planting and growing a harvest. I wrote an article this week for holiness today on prevenient grace. Um, it was fun to think about that doctrine again. It's a doctrine where Wesleyans, we believe God is at work in the world already before we ever get there. And Jesus says, listen, The spirit of God is at work in the world. The harvest is growing. What I need are workers to go out and harvest. Which leads us to chapter 10, verse one. He called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And I'm gonna empower you to do what you need to do. I'm gonna give you authority and giftedness and the rest of the whole text in chapter 10 is about, and I'm gonna teach you how to just trust me that I will show up when you need me. And there will be places of hospitality where I am at work and you need to respond. And lastly, verse two, the names of the 12 apostles, Simon, Peter, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas who betrayed Jesus. That list is significant for us because it's a reminder that as we are sent out in mission, we're never sent alone. If I had a whiteboard this morning and a few more, a little more time, I'd show you every time the disciples are listed, scholars wrestle with the fact that they're listed usually in, it depends on how you break them up, but clearly either in three groups of four or six groups of two. It's usually this way, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and then Philip and the next three, and then it's usually Simon and the next three. Like, they're listed in groups of four as though they were sent out always, either in groups of four or two sets of twos. For as much as I am thankful for the five years of pastoring this church, I know that I am not in this alone. They are called to do this together as a community. We are participants together. And I love that in this list, we get Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon, a zealot. You could not get two more politically diverse people than that. Matthew, who has spent his life helping to kind of be a conservative and participate in the building of empire and another who has spent his life violently revolting against it. I love that they're both included as far right and as far left as you can get because it's a reminder that we who have entered this kingdom have been shaped by a politic that ex- that is so deeper and broader than just being a person from the right or the left, a conservative or a liberator. And even Judas reminds us that our response to the call is not enough, that each of us has to guard our lives and be faithful. For it is easy to join the mission only to make a mess of things. And so this morning, as we journey together, as we begin this journey for the next 24 weeks, through this part of the gospel of Matthew, we are reminded today that we have a mission. A mission that begins with compassion. It's a mission to be workers in the field. It's a mission in which we are empowered by God, but it's a mission that we do together. And and I want to conclude by saying that I think we at this church and in this time have a couple of significant moments of mission in front of us. Um, I felt like an Idahoan a couple of times this week. um, A couple of times this week, I was trying to get from the north end of Eagle home at like five in the afternoon and trying to find an Idaho way home, right? There's just all these people moving here. And there's just cars everywhere, and they're like sanctified cuss words coming out of my mouth as I saw these people. Like, ah, there's no, ah, there's no fast way to get anywhere anymore. I thought, oh my word, I've become an Idahoan. I said to the folks in Middleton this morning too. I know for some of you. It's kind of heartbreaking when you see so many of these fields around us that for years, you have watched um, the seasons come and go and they, they grow onions or sugar beets or corn, potatoes. And you're now seeing many of those fields be sold and, and uh, farmers building really big homes and, uh, and those fields being turned into housing developments out where we live, it just feels like every field is becoming all these homes. I, I hope that you're not too discouraged by that. I hope that for us as a church, that as we see that happen, we recognize God is giving us a moment of mission. And those fields may now have a very different kind of harvest in them, but a harvest nonetheless. As we see all those homes and all those folks moving into this area, that we that we plead to use the language of the Common English Bible, we plead with God that God would raise up workers for that mission. And I know these last few weeks um, have been incredibly challenging with regards to the race conversation and race relations. And I know those conversations can be really divisive. Um, I was sharing with a a young pastor this week. I I said, you know, I I feel about this conversation the way I feel about holiness conversations that that those of us in the holiness uh, tradition, we recognize even though God has done so much in our lives, we still, he has still so much to do. And it's okay for us in this moment to recognize that even though so much has, taken place that is good, there is still so much work to do. And in this moment, I I have thought often, we as God's people should look at this and not say it's easy, but we should say, oh, this, we get this one. At the time we were this high, we sang red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Like we understand this is kingdom of God stuff. This is new creation stuff. This is healing of the brokenness of the world stuff. If there's anybody who should lean into this, it is us. And should not see this as a moment of fear or a moment to retrench or a moment to get in our politicized bubbles, whether right or left. This is a moment for us to say and plead, Lord, send workers into this moment to lean into the healing of the world and empower us to do that. And so we are a people whom God has given a mission, a mission that started with Abraham and is embodied in David and a mission that leans into the reconciling God with God's people and his people to one another. God, help us today. This is an odd morning of feeling connected and disconnected, of being present and being separated. But it is not unlike um, the reality that we confess that the new creation has come and is still coming the kingdom of God is here and is still on its way. But this morning we recognize that this is a mission to, into which you have called us. Um, and so may it be a mission that's lived by compassion, hearts broken like yours. May it be a mission that we recognize um, is empowered by you. And may it be a mission we do together. And so we plead today, um, find workers for this harvest. And we pray that we would be part of that. And so bless uh, these days, as awkward as they are, make them still moments of mission for us as a church. Thanks for this community, the way it's growing. May that be not be a source of our sadness, but may that be the very thing that empowers us to recognize you have given us a mission field and you are extending that mission field each day. And we pray in these moments of, of a recognition of our brokenness, that you would heal us and that you would make us instruments of healing. For we pray this in Jesus' name.